Well, David, thank you for the uh, invitation and for the welcome tonight. And it has been uh, encouraging to hear uh, the stories that we've heard already. And I look forward to hearing uh, more uh, tomorrow. Um, in January, I uh, was in uh, Chiwoko at the hospital there. Uh, in Uganda, we have had a mission partnership with Chiwoko Hospital uh, with our church for quite a number of years, and as well through Stephen and Linda Park, uh, who I think were to go last month, if I'm correct. Um, and uh, so uh, do, do pray for them as they take up that work. There's a very exciting work going on uh, in Chiwoko, um, and the influence of the hospital has spread far and wide, but at the moment the hospital is in a time of transition, in that uh, Rory Wilson, who's from Bangor, he and his wife Denise uh, are returning now, uh, having completed their term serving with CMS. Um, there's a couple from uh, Bangor, uh, Hamilton Road Baptist, Paul and Tanya Blamfin, who will still remain. Uh, and it's very good, I think, at this stage that there's another couple going from here, namely Stephen and Linda, uh, to support the work that's going on there in Chiwoko uh, 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 under the auspices of UFM. But it is a time of transition. Uh, and so do pray for them as they settle into that new work in Chiwoko. Um, since I uh, was first uh, in communication with um, David about the conference, I had a slight change of direction after I had given him the overall title. But the overall title actually still works, um, the things that matter most. And what I'm proposing to do tonight and then in the two sessions that we have tomorrow is actually look at some of those things as, as they um, are seen in, in the lives of, of Moses and of Nehemiah and of David. Um, and, and, and I suppose tying all of that together under the general theme of the work of God and the things that matter most when you're involved in the work of the kingdom. Whether you're a goer or whether you're a sender, all of us have our part to play in the work that God has given us to do. And so I hope that I'll be able to draw out from uh, the examples that there are in Scripture of these particular individuals, um, of how these things that are of first importance, these things that matter most, are, are reflected uh, in the work that they were given to do for God and hopefully then will be also reflected in the work that we do uh, for him as well. And we're turning tonight, first of all, to Moses. Let me encourage you to, to take your Bibles. Um, it be important uh, to have uh, your Bible as we look at this particular passage. Um, I'm reading from the, the ESV. You'll have different versions, but let me encourage you to follow along nevertheless. And I'm going to read tonight just from uh, Exodus chapter 18, though I'll refer to one or two other parts of Exodus as well. But I'm coming in at Exodus 18, where Moses has a visit uh, 
from his father-in-law, Jethro. Turns out to be a very significant encounter, um, as you will see as we hear the word of God. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, are coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. And may God bless to us his word. It's almost 30 
years ago now since I made my first visit to the city of Aberdeen. I went with several colleagues and our purpose in going was to spend some time with the Reverend William Still, now in glory, but at that time the minister of Gilcomson South Church in the heart of the city. We arrived on Friday evening, we met him in his home for coffee on the Saturday morning and then attended the Saturday evening prayer meeting. On Sunday morning after the service, I was waiting to go with my hosts to lunch when Mr. Still approached me, tapped me on the arm and said, come and see me tonight after the service. Now, I'd never been to the evening service in Gilcomson South Church, but it was their practice when the service was over to wheel in tea trolleys to the main church building Mr. Still then sat up at the communion table at the front, and tea was brought to him there, and anyone who wanted to come and talk to him could do so. There was always a queue, and I had to wait some time before I was able to speak with him, and I remember as I, as I sat there in the front row, waiting my turn, my heart was beating inside faster than usual because I wasn't sure what this colossus of a man wanted to see me about and what he was going to ask me. He began by inquiring about my ministry in Waringstown, not so far away from where we are tonight. At that time, it was only in its infancy I'd been there probably in and around two or three years. I said a few things about what we were trying to do. I can't remember any of the specific details. But I'll never forget his response. He said, that's good, David. Now, keep on. Keep on. And as we come this evening to this part of the book of Exodus, where the Israelites have just begun their journey to the promised land under the leadership of Moses, what Moses and the Israelites are facing is the challenge of keeping on and not turning back. And in chapter 18, we come to a very significant point in Moses' relationship with the people whom he has been called to lead. And as I have meditated on the events that are recorded in these chapters, it seems to me that there are at least four important lessons to be learned here about how to keep on in the work of God. Because that's the challenge for all of us, no matter what stage we happen to be at in the Christian life, no matter whether we are goers or senders in the work of mission. And here's the first lesson, because what's immediately striking in these chapters, it seems to me, are the pressures that are inevitable because of the demands of the work. And the pressures here are twofold. There is, in the first instance, what I'm going to call the pressure of place. Now, we need to turn back just for a moment to the beginning of chapter 16, 
where we read in verse 1, which sets the context for what happens here in chapter 18. We're told at the beginning of chapter 16, the Israelites set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Now, the name, S-I-N, Sin, is not to be confused with the word sin, which occurs so frequently throughout the Bible. Because here the name that is given to this part of the desert means clay or mud. And what it tells us is that this particular region of the Sinai Peninsula was an inhospitable and lonely place. And in this environment, God's people found themselves being subjected to a series of tests and trials. That is often the way. And that is what these chapters describe. Charles Swindon, in his book on the life of Moses, identifies in these chapters what he calls a trio of tests. There is the test of time. He notes how in verse 22 of chapter 15, the people went into the wilderness of Shur, where they journeyed for three days. They stopped at a place called Marah, verse 23, but they could not drink the water because it was bitter. But the Lord made the water sweet, verse 25, so that they were able to drink it. And soon after that, they came to Elam, verse 27, where they had all the water and the shade that they needed. But by the time they came to leave Elam at the beginning of chapter 16 and go into the wilderness of Sin, which they did on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, a month and a half had passed. And being in the wilderness wasn't such a great adventure anymore. So they began to look back, verse 3, to the meat pots and the bread and the other food they'd been able to eat when they were still in Egypt, and that led into the second test, which was the test of hunger. Because it's hard to survive in the wilderness when food supplies are running low. And the people began to think that they were going to die in spite of all that the Lord had already done to preserve them and to provide for them. And then added to that, there's the test of thirst. Chapter 17, verse 3, where we read of how the people thirsted for water. Once again, they convinced themselves they were all going to die. And these tests, along with the resultant pressures that were then brought to bear on Moses as their leader, came from the place to which the Lord had brought them. And I think that can be a particular experience for those who are sent out as cross-cultural missionaries. The pressure of place. But there's also here the pressure of people. If we'd read all the way through from chapter 15, verse 22, you would have noticed the repetition of one particular word. It's in chapter 15, verse 24. It's there again in verse 2 of chapter 16. Then again in verses 7, 8, 9, and 12 in that same chapter. And then in verse 3 of chapter 17. And it's the word grumble. In fact, if you were to read the whole story of the wilderness wanderings of Israel in the book of Numbers as well as in the book of Exodus, which extended for 40 years, you would find that the entire period of their wilderness wandering was marked by a spirit of complaining and of griping. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Aaron. They grumbled against the elders. And, of course, they grumbled against the Lord. 
And when grumbling begins among people, whether it's in a factory or in an office or in a staff room or in a church, it is highly contagious and it spreads very quickly. And as the seeds of discontent are sown, there is a corresponding harvest of discord and dissension. And as Moses began to undertake the task of leading the congregation of Israel, he found himself coming under these pressures. The pressure of the place into which God had brought them, and the pressure of a people who resorted to grumbling and complaining every time there was a perceived crisis. And Moses was neither immune from all this, nor was he impervious to it. And when Jethro, his father-in-law, came to visit him, chapter 18, he found someone who was virtually worn out by the incessant demands that were being placed upon him in the service of God's people. And we need to be constantly aware of that. I don't think it an exaggeration to say that had things continued as they were, Moses would have ended up suffering what in today's language we call spiritual burnout. Something that appears to be a growing problem today amongst those who are involved in the service of God's people. It certainly is in our denomination. We have more ministers off with stress than we've ever had before. Listen to these words from the late Ronald Dunn, who was an internationally renowned Bible teacher who came frequently to the Keswick Convention. In one of his books, Ronald Dunn writes this, I first knew I was in serious trouble while sitting in the front pew of a church one evening waiting for the service to start. Fear suddenly gripped me. An undefined but real fear. I knew I could not preach that night. Walking up to the pulpit and preaching a sermon was impossible. I knew I couldn't get through it, but I had to. There was still about 10 minutes before the service started, so I left the sanctuary and walked back and forward in a darkened hallway, pleading with God to get me through the service. And he did. But there were more nights like that. And I began to imagine that the congregation could tell that something was wrong, that they could sense my fear and see my trembling. And so I avoided people, leaving the services as soon as possible. As a matter of fact, I avoided everybody I could. And I guess it was during this time that I got the reputation of being a loner. One pastor, on introducing me to his Sunday morning congregation, a large one, and on television said, Ronald Dunn is a hard person to get to know. Thankfully, I have never quite had Ronald Dunn's experience. Though that's not to say that I couldn't, but I can empathize with him. Because the demands of ministry are such that it can bring at times almost intolerable pressures. Sometimes those pressures come from circumstances over which you have little or no control, but more often than not, they come from people. Such pressures cannot, of course, be avoided. They are inevitable, particularly for those involved in Christian mission, but that doesn't make them any easier. And that's the first thing we need to recognize here. But here's the second 
And it has to do with a principle that is indispensable because of the volume of the work. The first video that we saw tonight, overwhelming in terms of the numbers that have yet to hear the gospel. The volume of the work. Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourself out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. I wonder if you remember the end of apartheid in South Africa when millions of people who had been previously disenfranchised were given the opportunity to vote for the very first time in their lives. And as the elections took place back in 1994, the pictures were beamed all around the world of vast queues of people which formed outside the polling stations where the people stood for hours and in some cases for days in order to cast their vote. I imagine that it was a similar picture here in Exodus chapter 18. Only in this instance, it wasn't just a matter of standing in a queue for a few days until the election was over. This was something that went on day after day after day. And Moses, it seems, didn't feel that there was any other way to do it until Jethro, his father-in-law, came on the scene. Because up to this point, Moses was regarded as jack of all trades in Israel. He was prime minister. He was Lord Chief Justice. He was Archbishop of Canterbury, all rolled into one. Not to mention his role as Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces and Minister of Food and Water Supplies. But as Jethro watched his son-in-law sitting there in his tent from morning until evening and seeking in vain to deal with the sheer volume of the work, he said to Moses, verse 14, why do you sit alone? Verse 17, what you are doing is not good, which is a somewhat polite way of a father-in-law telling his son-in-law that what he's doing is absolutely crazy. And so Jethro tells him to share the load and to appoint, verses 21 and 22, judges and magistrates and arbitrators with varying degrees of responsibility to bear the burden with him. And as a result, Jethro said, not only would Moses be able to endure or to stand the strain, but the needs of the people would be effectively met. But before we move on, let's just take a moment to ask some questions as to why Moses was doing everything on his own. Because this is a particular temptation, I think, for Christian workers. Why should a person like Moses allow himself to get into this position where he was not only overwrought by the demands of the work, but overwhelmed by the volume of the work? Was it a mark of personal ambition? Was it the determination to prove himself better and more successful than anyone else? Was it an inflated ego that made him keep doing what he was doing even if it killed him? Was it a psychological need he sought to meet by relentlessly and incessantly driving himself into the ground? I'm not sure we can attribute any of those characteristics to Moses. Because Moses was first and foremost a servant of the Lord. 
And if anything, what we see here, I think, are in reality the marks of someone who is over-conscientious. And that in itself is not a fault, even though its consequences here needed to be addressed for the good of Moses and for the good of the people. But regardless of what it was that brought Moses to this point, each of us needs to test our motives when it comes to the work of God. I need to do that and so do you. Because sometimes we can have what is called a need to be needed. And that can be an enormous driving force in our lives and it can be very counterproductive and not least because it is subject to the law of diminishing returns. For a while, to begin with, people may luxuriate in the attention that we're giving them because we have a need to be needed. But there will come a time where they will feel they've had enough. And they're being smothered and suffocated and almost taken over. And that creates all sorts of problems. And we need, therefore, to examine our hearts. And to ask what our motivation really is when it comes to the work of God. Is it zeal for the glory of God? Or is it zeal for the glory of me? But let's go back to Jethro's advice to Moses and to the solution he proposed on account of the volume of the work. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Verse 21, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. In some ways, it's a very simple solution. And you wonder, why did Moses not see it before? But sometimes we can't see that which is in front of us. But this responsibility, notice, is not to be given to any Tom, Dick, or Harry. This responsibility, whether it's for a larger or a smaller number of people, is to be given only to those who are suitably qualified. And three particular qualifications are set out in verse 21. And I think these are so important, particularly in cross-cultural contexts. There is a personal requirement because these men are to be able men or capable men, as the NIV translates it. But there's also a spiritual requirement because these are to be men who fear God. And then there's to be a moral requirement because these men are, are to be those who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. That is, men of integrity who are not open to corruption. And this is not only important, but it is vital. Because you can only do spiritual work with spiritual people. Christian work needs Christian people who serve for the sake of Christ and who live for the glory of Christ. But there's a third lesson to learn here. Because while Jethro tells Moses that he needs to share the work with others and embrace the principle of delegation, he also recognizes that there are certain priorities in all of this that are inviolable because of the nature of the work. There is, first of all, the priority of teaching. This is not to be lost in this reorganization. 
Look at verse 20. You shall warn them or teach them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. In other words, Moses is to make sure, and in fact he is to do this personally himself, that the word of God is taught to the people of God. That's to be his priority. And it's also to be our priority, whether it's at home here in the congregations in which we serve or whether it's overseas in the particular context in which we minister. We, of course, as Christian congregations, are not Israelites. Those of us who are pastors in the church of Jesus Christ do not occupy a position of leadership equivalent to that of Moses. But there is nevertheless a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the teaching of the Word of God. And when the first congregation of Christ is established in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, what's the first thing we're told that those spirit-filled Christians did? We're told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The late John Stott puts it like this. He says the church needs to listen attentively to God's word since its life and maturity depend upon it. So pastors must expound it. It is to this that they've been called. Whenever they do so with integrity, the voice of God is heard and the church is convicted and humbled, restored and reinvigorated and transformed into an instrument for his use and his glory. But to do that takes time and energy on the part of those who are preachers and teachers. And that is something which needs to be understood both by minister and congregation, by pastor and people, that they ensure that this priority is maintained wherever God is calling us to serve so that the word of God is taught and expounded in the way that it should be. When I was serving as minister in Waringstown just before I went to Bangor in 1994, we lived in the grounds of the church building. The manse there has now just been demolished but when we lived there, there was just a wall that separated us from the church car park. There was a gate in the wall, and you could literally walk from the manse to the church in less than a minute. Now, that had its advantages, especially on a Sunday morning when I was coming back to Waringstown, having taken a service in my other congregation of Belleville, for which I was responsible some nine miles away. And sometimes, though not often, I was able to grab a quick cup of coffee in between services. But there were also disadvantages, especially when people forgot their church keys and came to us to let them in at various times of the day and the night. But overall, we didn't mind it. And it meant that as a family, we never had to get into the car to go to church. And as I was thinking about our experience in, in, in Waringstown, particularly now that the manse is no longer there, I was reminded of a young American minister who frequently boasted in public that all the time he needed to prepare his sermons was the few minutes it took him to walk from the manse to the church, which, like ours in Waringstown, was just next door. And maybe you can guess what the elders and the deacons did. They bought him a new manse, five miles away, and they insisted on Sunday mornings he should walk, because there is a priority in the teaching of the Word of God that we must never lose sight of, and that is something that Jethro emphasized in the advice that he gave 
to his son-in-law, Moses. But secondly, though, I think in reality it ought to come first. There's the priority of prayer. And the reason for that is that wherever you turn in the Bible, the front line when it comes to the work of God is found in the place of prayer. Tomorrow we're going to come to Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah begins and ends with Nehemiah lifting his voice to God in prayer. It's the same with Daniel. It's the same with Elijah. And of course, it is supremely illustrated in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not least on the eve of his trial and crucifixion, where he enters the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And such was the intensity of his prayer that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And here in the book of Exodus, the same priority is being established in the leadership of God's people. We find it in chapter 18 in what Jethro says to Moses, because Jethro, even though he was an outsider in certain ways, recognized that there is more to the leadership of the people of God than mere delegation. So he said to Moses, verse 19, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. What is that if it's not intercession? Because prayer, even at this stage in the life of the people of God, is made a priority in spite of all the restructuring that goes on. And that priority needs to be maintained among us in the church today. We see this worked out in the chapter that comes before chapter 18, actually. It's the second part of Exodus 17, just back a page. And there it begins in verse 8 with three ominous words. Then Amalek came. The Amalekites were a nomadic people descended from Esau. They had a reputation for being fierce and warlike. And here in Exodus 17, it seems, they band together to attack the Israelites. No specific reasons given for the attack. All we're told is Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. But Moses, as you will see in verse 9, did a most extraordinary thing as the Israelites prepared to face their first battle following their deliverance from Egypt. Because Moses said to Joshua, we're told, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, the biblical scholars offering, offer different opinions as to what Moses was doing as he raised up the staff in his hand on the hill. Some say it as a military gesture, whereby he pointed the staff one way when the troops were to advance and pointed it the other way when they were to retreat. Some think it was more of a psychological ploy, so that as the people in the valley below looked up and saw Moses standing on the mountain with the staff of God in his hand, they would be reminded of all the miracles that had been performed in Egypt with that same staff. But I don't think either of those provides the explanation. Because the staff was not to be outstretched as it was in Egypt. It was to be uplifted. Pointing in the direction of where? Pointing in the direction of heaven and of heaven's God. And the staff in this instance is the symbol of prayer. And that I think is made clear in verse 15 of chapter 17. Where we read Moses built an altar and called the the name of it the Lord is my banner. Saying a hand upon the throne of God. 
And the lesson I suggest that we're meant to learn from this first battle in which the Israelites had to engage following their rescue and redemption from Egypt is that prevailing prayer is a vital necessity in the work of God and that without it we cannot hope to make any progress as we battle against the forces of evil and the powers of darkness. Now there is at Rephidim a very obvious partnership between those who are up on the mountain and those who are down in the valley. And we mustn't lose sight of what Joshua and his men had to endure as the Amalekites came up against them and engaged them in battle. And we must recognize what they were doing down in the valley was every bit as important as what Moses, Aaron, and Hur were doing up on the mountain. But the point that's being made here is that if Joshua and his men had plunged into the battle without the intercession of Moses and his companions, they would have been heading straight for defeat. Because that's how it is in the work of God. And isn't that what is emphasized in the work of this mission? The partnership there is in prayer between those who were on the field and those who were here at home? But let me just add two quick observations about this. The first is that prevailing prayer is exacting for the worker. Look at verse 12 of chapter 17. Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. Mr. Still of Aberdeen, whom I referred to at the beginning, once wrote a chapter for a book entitled Ten Praying Churches. In it, he said this about their Saturday night prayer meeting, which I attended and which lasted in those days for about two and a half hours from seven o'clock to 9.30. He described it as prayer in which we wrestle, which is how, of course, the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, when he appeals to his fellow believers to strive or to wrestle with, together with him in their prayers. And Mr. Still made this observation. He said, I am more exhausted on Saturday evenings after between two and three hours of wrestling prayer than I am after two long services on Sunday with hours spent in fellowship and counseling afterwards. This is hardly surprising since this kind of prayer requires the utmost spiritual energy. Michael Bourne, who served for a number of years as the rector of All Souls Church in central London, puts it like this. He says, as the disciples discovered in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's much easier to sleep than to pray. Prayer is work. It can also be a joy, a blessing, a great experience, but it is work. Prevailing prayer is exacting for the worker. But prevailing in prayer is essential for the work. It's brought out so beautifully in verse 11 of chapter 70. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And what that's telling us is that the outcome of the battle lay not so much with the combatants on the field, important though they were, but with the interceders on the mountain. Mr. Still, to quote him again, describes it as the powerhouse of our entire ministry. And looking back as he was at that time in four decades of ministry, he says, I have learned that there is nothing so fruitful in Christian service as a ministry of Bible exposition watered by the faithful and consistent prayers of the people. 
Michael Bourne in similar vein says such prayer is vital to the life and health of the Christian community and its witness. Knock out the prayer gathering and you might as well shut down all other activity in the name of Christ. I'm not sure enough people in our churches today believe that. So pressures that are inevitable because of the demands of the work. A principle that is indispensable because of the volume of the work. Priorities that are inviolable because of the nature of the work. And fourthly and lastly, a provision that is inexhaustible because of the one whose work it is. Moses is clearly the dominant figure in the book of Exodus. But it's not Moses who is the hero in this drama, is it? It's not Moses who brings the people across the Red Sea. It's not Moses who provides the manna in the desert. It's not Moses who brings water from the rock. It's not even Moses who brings Jethro out into the wilderness at this crucial time. All of this is the work of God. And because it is his work, he will provide his servants and his people with everything they need for the doing of that work if they will but look to him. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 of his labors as an apostle and he says that he worked harder than them all, he immediately adds, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And because of that, he's able to write to that same church in Corinth, which had given him so much grief, but which he so dearly loved. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Several years ago, I went through a particularly testing time in my own ministry. And I felt the pressures and the demands of the work in a particularly intense way, such as I hadn't ever felt them before, I think. I won't go into the details, but things came to a head over a particular weekend, and they were clearly going to get worse before they would get better. On the Sunday evening, I was about to leave the minister's room to make my way home. I lifted my phone out of my briefcase, noticed there was a message for me. It was from a former associate minister, and it said, Hi, David, how are you today? Just thought you could use a bit of encouragement. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Do you know it? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When I got home that night, I rang my friend and colleague. I told him how much I'd appreciated his encouragement and how timely it was. I then asked him what had prompted him to send it, thinking he had heard something from someone 
about the difficulties we were going through. He said he hadn't. But he then hesitated, and I said, well, are you going to tell me? And he said, do you really want to know? I said, of course I want to know. He said, okay, I'll tell you. I dreamt about you last night, he said. When I woke up this morning, I couldn't get you out of my mind. And then I thought about what I should do. That verse came to mind. Now, I'm not advocating dreams as an authoritative form of revelation, nor am I suggesting we should make something like this part of normal Christian experience. Having said that, I have no doubt that the Lord was behind it because he is the one who makes provision for the work and for the worker. And those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, it served to give me the assurance that I needed at that time to remain steadfast and to keep on in the work of the Lord. So let me encourage you, whether you're serving here, at home, or overseas, whether you're on the front line or behind the scenes, whether you're a goer or a sender, to keep abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain because he is faithful and he will do it.